Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. The Archaeology Podcast Network is sponsored by PCS Jobs. APN listeners can post for free by going to arcpodnet.com forward slash PCS. That's $50 off the normal price at www.arcpodnet.com forward slash PCS. Hello and welcome to the Archaeology Podcast, episode 16. I'm Chris Webster. And I'm April Camp Whitaker. On today's show, we're going to be interviewing Dr. Kathy Camp, author of Life in the Pueblo. Let's dig a little deeper. Great. So today we are doing a little interview with Dr. Catherine Camp, who is an archaeologist at Grinnell College. And amongst her many research interests, um, she's pretty well known for the book Life in the Pueblo, which is an introductory book used in a lot of classrooms. So we thought it'd be fun to bring her on, talk to her a little bit about background and how this book came about. Um, So Kathy, if you wouldn't mind just introducing yourself and telling us a little bit about some of your background in archaeology and your research interests. Okay, I came to archaeology, I would guess you'd say late. As an undergraduate, I was a biology major, and then I switched and I became a psychology major. Then I went to graduate school in psychology and kind of fluked into archaeology because I wanted to get out of psychology, and I thought, hmm, what do I like to do? And I decided going to museums was what I liked to do. So I went to the University of Arizona to be in their museum studies program. Unfortunately, I never took a museum studies course. (laughs) I took an archeology span course and I thought this is kind of cool. Then I went to Grasshopper Field School and I thought, oh my God, you mean I could get paid to do this? (laughs) And um, you know, the rest is history. I just never uh, did exactly what I thought I was gonna do. I got trapped. I, I, I think, think that's, that's a lot of stories in archaeology. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, I, it is just amazingly interesting, captivating. Uh, even the lab analysis mm-hmm. is fun. <laughs> nice. That nice. one you might have a few dissenters on. <laughs> yeah, it depends. Some people yeah. like lab work, some people don't. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I think you have to be excited about all the aspects because, unfortunately, to be an ethical archaeologist, you have to do everything. You can't just go and dig things up or even survey things. You need to do the analysis and you need to do the write-up. Well, let's uh, let's bring this back to the book. I, I, I'm sitting here looking. Um, I was one of those uber geeks in my undergrad that... Uh, and, and I was the only one, actually, especially in an anthropology class in the year 2000, where I typed all of my notes, um, the notes that I took in class. I typed all those. Oh I typed all that stuff and all my papers, of course. And I have all those things still. Um, 
And I'm sitting here looking at a paper from January 31st, 2000. I, I started in an aviation program, actually, in Oklahoma, and then I transferred to the University of North Dakota. So this was my first semester at like a liberal arts college. And I filled up my electives with the intro classes for the anthropology department. And this was the um, <laughs> Anth 172, Introduction to Archaeology and World Prehistory. Uh, yeah, and I've got a paper here about the first three chapters of Catherine Camp's book, Life in the Pueblo, and the paper is titled, <laughs> A Processualistic Approach to Archaeology. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's great. I'm actually reading through this, and, uh, and um, I was reading through it uh, yesterday, actually, and it's um, I, it's, uh, it's really, I don't think I analyzed anything. It's really just kind of a summary of the book, because I didn't know what the heck I was doing or talking about. So, um <laughs> Why don't you tell? Why don't you tell us first what year was the book published? I think it was in 1998. Is okay. that right? <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure because I don't have it in front of me. I recently moved, and I think it's in a box. I don't either. It's either 1998 or 1999. Okay. Well, we'll uh, we'll have a link to it in the show notes so people can go check it out and, and buy a copy if they want. So, um, people are. I mean, you're still. Selling copies of this book, it's, uh, I mean, we're, we're working on 20 years now. That says something about the staying power of the sort of foundational nature that this book has, I think. Why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about, you know, what it's about? Well, I went to teach after my graduate degree at the University of Arizona. I went to teach at Grinnell College, and they wanted a field school. So my dissertation had been done in Syria, and frankly, there is no way I was going to take a gigantic group of <laughs> undergraduates to Syria for a field school. Yeah. So we decided the, that the American Southwest would be where we would go. That's where my husband, John Whitaker, does his research. And so we went. We looked for a site. We found a site that was going to be part of a land exchange which means that they, the Forest Service wanted to have it as completely researched as possible so mm -hmm. that it was it's very close to current modern-day Flagstaff and particularly to the railroad. And so they wanted to do a land exchange. As it turns out, they never did do the land exchange, mm. but we were doing the first part of you know making that a possibility for them. Uh, we loved doing field schools. We did... A number of them, four of them on that site, and then we started writing up the professional monograph. Uh, and I kept thinking, huh, my students aren't going to read this. This was a very important part of their lives, but they won't read uh, the traditional archaeological monograph with all of the detailed lithic tables and other <laughs> extremely exciting parts. Mm-hmm. So we wanted to do a good professional job on that, but but it also seemed important to have something that our ex-students, most of whom, because Grinnell is a liberal arts school, are not archaeologists. A mm -hmm. few of them are, but most of them aren't. And simultaneously, I was teaching an intro course called Human Evolution and Prehistory, and I thought there is nothing, or wasn't much at least at that time, that was the equivalent of those little Spindler volumes. I don't know if you have ever read those, but they were, they're, they're still yeah. around. They, it, tiny little ethnographies mm -hmm. that you could assign and that I thought were incredible fun to read 
even before I got into anthropology. And so I wanted to write something similar to that. And Waveland had taken over the Spindler series. So I thought in terms of, well, maybe a Waveland press book that was short and hopefully somewhat readable. And I wanted to think about how best to do this. And I wanted to interweave the student's story of their experiences, their discoveries, in with the story of the archaeological analysis, the stories of the past. Um, I wanted it all to be kind of an integrated um, narrative. Okay. So that was kind of the motivation for trying to uh, to write life in the Pueblo. And it was so much more fun to write than <laughs> the archaeological monograph. I'm sure. I'm sure. I also think that archaeologists really need to spend more time, and I wish we got more professional credit for trying to communicate with the public. Mm -hmm. And uh, so Life in the Pueblo, in addition to having a few classes that still use it, um, sells in places like National Park, some of the national parks. Mm -hmm. And so I think I think we need to do more of that kind of writing. And there and there is more and more being done. Unfortunately, the profession doesn't or at least the academic part of the profession doesn't reward it very well. Yeah. And I think. uh I think just to kind of go on a tangent a little bit, I'm I'm pretty active in, uh, you know, sort of the the digital side of of archaeology, you know, meaning blogs and in of course mm -hmm. this podcast network and then Twitter and things like that. There are a fair number of academic archaeologists, uh, and I feel like they're really started as PhD students, you know, before right. they before they finished and they were writing blogs and doing these things and trying to get credit for this stuff. And some of their universities are starting to turn turn around a little bit and recognize that the writing contributions you make from a from a public non-peer-reviewed standpoint um, are, are actually valid. <laughs> so, well, you know. And, you know, even if you put things on academia, which is just a digital, I mean, it's a digital scholarly format, but yeah. people read it. Right. They find it and they read it. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, those blogs are the same way. And I hope you're right that there will become an avenue, I will say, I don't think Grinnell really mm -hmm. recognizes that yet because it's not peer reviewed. And, you know, the whole emphasis in our tenuring process is, is it peer reviewed? Right. I think it's being recognized more as part of the current drive for archaeologists to have a public outreach or a yes. public communication component. So it's not counting towards our publications um, and kind of scholarly development, but it's counting mm -hmm. as engagement. Right. And I um, could see it as important for getting a job. Yeah. I could see it as one of the things that a department would look at and say, oh, yes, this person is really good at reaching out and they're going to really click with students. I could see. And, and I do I do actually see it as uh, I, I mean, so let, let, look, not that we intended the conversation to go this way, but this is fantastic. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> You know, you look at a you look at a, a traditional peer reviewed article, and that's reviewed by a handful of people. You know, not not very many, yeah. just a handful of people. They look at it, you know, you make revisions, and then it gets turned back in. Right? A blog right. is is actually peer reviewed by 
potentially thousands of people. I mean, it's not the official peer right. review process, but when people start leaving comments, people on the internet are brutal. Now, some of those comments are just going to be, you know, <laughs> ig- ignorant comments, but other comments are going to be from your peers saying, hey, did you think about this? And did you think about that? And it really gets people thinking in a much more, I think, realistic way than, than four people looked at your article and you're kind of preaching to the choir a little bit and then it gets published and then there's no room for comment because it's stuffed away in a journal that only six people have access to. So, um, you know, I, I feel, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say they also, you know, we always say that students vote with their feet in classes. So you can sometimes tell a failing teacher because no one will sign up (laughs) for their class. Right. Uh, Similarly, if people start subscribing to your blog and and following you, mm-hmm. you know you've done something right. Yeah, yeah, and I and I think books can be. It takes a little longer, but books, you know, popular. Um, I guess uh, I don't know. I don't know what the right term is, but any any book you write. I mean, if it's used for like for example, your book has been used for 20 years in schools, that's a pretty good peer review right there. Your peers say, I want to use this to teach my students about archaeology. And I mean, that's a, that's pretty high praise right there. More than, more than any article you probably wrote 20 years ago. Is anybody still looking at those, you know, but the book is in national parks, it's in classrooms, it's in students' backpacks right now. So, um, that's a, that's pretty high praise. Um, but let's bring it back to the book a little bit. And I want to, <laughs> I, I want to get, cause we could actually go on this forever, I think, um, uh, for the rest of the oh, episode, yeah. but, uh, Let's go back to the book and 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 dig just a little bit deeper into it. Um, just because I, I mean, it's been a long time since I read this, but now it's all kind of coming back to me as I read my uh, the couple papers that I wrote about it. Uh, Lizard Man Village, tell us about that. So Lizard Man Village was, I think, a very typical kind of site for the Sanawa to have. Uh, it was occupied uh, right post the eruption of Sunset Crater, so mm-hmm. sometime around the mid eighty ten hundreds, and then abandoned sometime around AD 1250. Uh, so it was occupied a long time, but never very intensively. Right. So it was a small, small village, and uh, probably people who were related. And we know that they were utilizing the surrounding area. We have some field houses we, uh, to do agriculture. We have field houses and so forth. But the area is not really uh, suitable for very intensive farming. Mm-hmm. And so there's a necessity for this, these small villages rather than big sites. In fact, towards the end of the occupation, we've been after we excavated a lizard man village, we excavated one season at something called Fortress Hills Pueblo, mm-hmm. which is a very, very similar site. And then we went, wow, this is a very similar site. Um, you know, we feel like we kind of understand this site because we spent four years at lizard man village and uh, it kind of reaffirmed that this was, you know, looked typical so we went to a slightly later site, one that initially was occupied during the latter part of Lizard Man Village and then continued on a bit later, mm-hmm. uh, called New Caves Pueblo. And it is different in that it is larger, and it is also located in kind of a defensive location. Um, after sites like New Caves Pueblo were abandoned, 
in fact, the whole area was abandoned. And, and we think that really the, the larger sites were probably unsustainable given the ecology of the area. Even New Caves isn't that huge. It's you know maybe <laughs> 200 households at, at a time was the max, or, or was the max possible. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'm not okay. sure that it was ever gigantic. And what's the time period that for the village for this village? Um, when when was it at its peak? For New Caves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Uh, Lizard Man Village was being abandoned in in the mid twelve fifties, and uh, Fortress, uh, sorry, New Caves was being occupied for the first time probably in the late eleven, early twelve hundreds, and then it was abandoned somewhere around thirteen fifty. Okay, so a little bit of overlap. Yeah, what? Uh... You know, you said this was going to be part of a, uh, you know, the the land swap that the the federal agencies do, but then yes. it wasn't. How, how long has it been since you've been back there, and do you know what the status of the the actual site is now? Well, we visit it almost every year. Oh, nice! <laughs> just to check up and see what's happened, and and it's had various things happen. There was a a train derailment oh, uh, one year, right? essentially onto the site it mm-hmm. didn't cause all that much damage but apparently perhaps reasonable given where we're from which mm-hmm. is corn country there was a dumpage of corn and corn syrup and some <laughs> things like that on the site but the forest and the forest service asked us to go out and do a little bit of an assessment for that mm-hmm. um just to take a look at it and make sure that it, there wasn't a lot of um, damage but uh, people go out there and shoot. People leave mattresses out there, mm-hmm. and you know we'll sometimes do just a tiny bit of cleanup. Um, but essentially, essentially, it's the same, and it's still unfortunately so near of uh, Flagstaff that people come and you know dump their old mattresses and right. you know. So it's it's not an ideal location, but since it's been. Very heavily excavated, I suppose. There's a lot less that can be damaged now. Nice. I, I didn't realize how close I was probably to that. We did a, my wife and I, uh, she was an archaeologist at the time. We did a project in New Mexico. And on our time off, we would go, because we were on a nine-on, five-off schedule. And so mm-hmm. on yes. those five days off, you know, we travel all over New Mexico and Arizona. And, and we went to Sunset Crater. Um, and I think, is uh, is Wupatki, if I'm pronouncing that right? Is that near there? Yeah. Yeah. It um, is. It- and yeah, Lizard Man's near the Townsend Winona Road. Okay, okay, which cool. doubtless went on. Yeah, at one, yeah, out uh, out to the east of Flagstaff. Nice. So you probably were near. Well, we're gonna go to break, and uh, while we do that, I'm gonna think about archaeologists 500 years from now finding remnants of corn syrup on this site and trying to figure out what the heck all that means. So yeah, I think there's nothing now. <laughs> Nice. (laughs) All right. Well, we're going to break and uh, we'll be back in 30 seconds or so. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it every time. 
And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. So, Cappy, now that we're back with the show after our short break, um, one of the things we want to talk about, too, is just sort of the structure of the book a little bit. So we know that it's a sort of general introductory text about um, archaeology presents a lot of the methods, um, but can you kind of tell us what some of your favorite segments are and what the inspiration and ideas behind them are in terms of kind of engaging people with archaeology? Well, I guess I liked um, a couple of segments. I like the fact that we started off with the story, the Hopi story of Sunset Crater. I also liked the fact that I challenge people to think about what happens if you uh, try to yourself envision the past, but make a past that's consistent with what archaeological evidence we have. I think it's one of the most valuable things for an archaeologist to do. Uh, it was inspired initially by Ruth Tringham, and then others have taken that up. But if you start trying to write a little short start story, a scenario, whatever, you start realizing all the questions that you need to, an to answer. And uh, I have liked the fact that I know some classes have had their students try to do this, to try to take evidence, whether from that book or others, and write stories of the past, but make them consistent with the archeological evidence, and then fill in the, the uh, little cracks. So you know that people, you know that the Sanawa raised corn, beans, squash, and you know they had fires and they had vessels and they cooked in these vessels over the fires because they're blackened and so on. But exactly what were their recipes? We don't know. We don't know whether cooking was minimalist or, or whether they, whether people tried to spice things and make interesting stews and so on. We assume they did because that's the kind of thing pe things people do. But I think it's really interesting to start realizing what you don't know as much as what you do know. Um, so I like that. I also like um, the fact, and this is a little bit of nostalgia for me, of the fact that it, it talks about some of the discoveries that we made, some of the challenges in analyzing. So people often think of the analytic process as kind of boring. You know, you measure flakes, you sort them into little piles. But I found things like trying to figure out what um, the little basalt cylinders that we were finding at the site, trying to come up with an answer of what those were, what they might be. I don't never sure that we came up with the right answer, but doing some experiments to try to test out different hypotheses. 
I personally found that really fun and exciting. And I think the students at Grinnell who were involved in those processes did as well. Similarly, trying to ask questions like, did were these little ugly figurines and tiny, tiny, tiny miniature pots um, made by kids, made by adults, what were they? Um, you know, I found trying the process of trying to answer those questions to be one of the kinds of engaging things about archaeology, a little bit of the detective work. And, and I tried to get a little bit of that narrative as well into the book. I think um, just just looking at this, uh, you know, what you were talking about telling stories. I can't remember if they if my professor had us do that in uh, in our classes. However, in the in one of the papers that I wrote in the second paragraph, so right right near the beginning, I I have a quote from you that says, you know, one of your goals was to uh, present says to present my interpretation of Lizardman Village as one of several possible readings of the past and. This would have been my first introduction into, you know, formal academic archaeology. I'm like a month into this new <laughs> curriculum here, and this is my first foundational thing. And I, I'm just reading that thinking, man, that is, that is such a huge problem that I face in, in CRM archaeology, which, you know, people see, <laughs> you know, A, B, C artifact equals D conclusion. And it's just, you know, they're like, well, we have this, that must mean this. And I like how you say... Uh, several possible readings of the past because we can almost probably never know exactly how somebody used something. It's, like you said, those little cylinders. Um, I mean, I'm looking at several things in my office right here that are probably not being used for the purpose they were intended by their manufacturer. Right. And, <laughs> and it's just, and, and I have an abundance of things compared to people in the past. You know, they, they had a handful of things that they had to make work for. I mean, it was the original iPhone, I think, was probably stoned back then. It was a multi-purpose device, and they really nailed it well before Steve Jobs did. <laughs> so <laughs> I just, I think that's great. And I and I think, I think that probably made its way into my subconscious somehow, and it's just been reinforced over the years. And now I, I think about that kind of thing all the time, and this was probably the, the genesis of that. So, well, thanks for that. <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah. I think it feeds this idea of kind of writing stories and narratives and thinking about here's the fact, here's what we know. Now, what are the holes? How do we fill these holes? How do we kind of people a past with action and activity it really feeds into some of the current um, theoretical and approaches that archaeologists are now taking, you know, just thinking about work on like the archaeology of the human experience, mm -hmm. um, which is really hot and trendy and, you know, people, I think archaeologists are catching on that there's only so much we can do by just analyzing an artifact. We have to think about how the artifact's made, and then we have to put it into the context, and then we have to think about what does that mean when people are making it and using it, and how does it fit into the rounds of activities? And I know one of my friends looks at macaws and was just thinking about how do you transport a macaw from Mexico to Arizona? What is it like carrying this noisy squawking <laughs> bird hundreds of miles in a basket? Um, you know, and just thinking through the logistics of that. How do you do it? What do you need? What do we know about how people were doing this? Um, so I think that's a really interesting way of approaching archaeology and helps us kind of probe those deeper questions or ask new questions that we don't think about asking. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting to see how how archaeology builds upon itself. 
it also is extremely interesting the way I'll say identity politics of various sorts has um, come into archaeology. And uh, I first started thinking about this really with Life in the Pueblo because my graduate training at Arizona was very processual. And, uh, you know, we really didn't think too much about who was doing it. We said they planted, they did this. And it was very um, non-individualistic. Once I had things like toys or possible toys, I had to start thinking about actually peopling the past, as you said, April, and trying to figure out um, what's the difference between being a young person and being an old person? What's the difference between being an older male and being an older female? What if you're what if you're a child and how is it different to be two than it is to be 12? And so, you know, I would say for me, this was an exciting career career moment, too, because um, I'd say the only other paper I've written that had legs was one that I wrote on childhood called Where Have All the Children Gone? And and that was a long time ago. And, and you know, people are still people are still using it. But I but this this notion of figuring out who people the past has really also taken off in archaeology that in a way I wouldn't have predicted when I was a graduate student because we just weren't talking about it then. <laughs> So really quick, for some um, less academically trained or informal archaeology listeners, can you define what we mean when we're talking about processual archaeology, since that's Uh, not necessarily part of the general American uh, parlance? Chris brought this up, but it was Mm -hmm. a it was a movement in the started really in the 1960s and an attempt to both make archaeology more scientific and to um, emphasize that archaeology wasn't just studying unique little culture histories. So we're not just studying about the Sanawa or the Sanawa of Lizard Man Village, but we ought to be studying about cultural processes and we ought to be uh, looking at some of the broader questions of interest like Mm -hmm how do societies adapt to their environments? Uh, why was agriculture developed? Some of the, some of those. So kind of applying the analysis from one site to the larger interpretation of the, of the area. Right. And also uh, really trying to be very careful about adhering to scientific processes. And one of the reasons that individuals weren't discussed or, or gender identities, age, was that um, people at that time would have thought, well, you know, how can you do that? You can't mm-hmm. really do that. You can't really, except perhaps through burials, access individuals. So the the pushback from processualism was post-processualism. <laughs> what, yes. what, what did people not like about it so they cha- that they changed? Wow. Uh, <laughs> Did I get a little too theory heavy just a minute ago? <laughs> well, I was going to say, yeah. So I'm not, I mean, I consider myself now, I guess, a post-processualist, but I really think it's post-post-processualist now. <laughs> nice. I'm not even sure what the, 
what the what the current terminology is. But mm -hmm. I think archaeology, in a lot of ways, has become a lot freer to accept multiple kinds of approaches, mm -hmm. and that really good archaeologists simultaneously use all kinds of approaches. So I would hate to say I was a processualist or a post-processualist. I would like to say, yes, I try to do what I can in, a, in the most scientific way possible. Mm -hmm. But I also don't like to close off my um, mind to the kind of insights that ethnography and ethnoarchaeology can bring. Mm -hmm. And that even using the imagination um, right. can bring archaeology. Yeah, I've never liked putting labels on things because people tend to try to fit into those labels and put themselves in a box, you know, and uh, with with cultural resource management archaeology, I mean, we do have a heavy focus on data collection, primarily because the reason we're there is the site's likely going to be destroyed. So, you know, we, we have to collect more data than we think is even necessary on, on maybe another site just because we don't know what's going to be useful later on and we, we can't go back. So, um, so, but I, but I think what that means is, you know, you collect data and you, you do the best you can to, to, you know, give the site exactly what it needs from a data collection standpoint and a scientific standpoint early on. And then later on, other people can come in and apply their own, their own touches and their own interpretations to what you did. And maybe even some further analysis, like the, the interview we just recorded, um, chronologically here this doesn't make any sense for the podcast episodes but we recorded an episode yesterday where they're looking at data from a site that's um you know from the early 90s and they're running new analysis on these things because they they properly collected the data back then so that now they can take samples and apply new techniques and learn new things um, so important yeah exactly so um so I, I think that's good and that's another reason why i think this is a good foundational book because i, I do think you know, even back in uh, 1998, uh, almost 20 years ago now, you know, you were you were writing that people need to kind of keep an open mind about this stuff and and just uh, you know interpret what they see, but don't think that that's the be all end all interpretation to what they are seeing. There might be some other perspectives, especially as us going in as you know Western, uh, you know, people of Western descent trying to interpret what's going on at a native American village. That's 700 years old. <laughs> you know, how can our perspective possibly equal theirs, you know, and, and, and how can we see the world the way they saw it? It's, it's, it's interesting. It is, it is. Um, I think some of this feeds into some of your more recent research, um, kind of looking at children and childhood. Um, would you mind telling us a little bit about what you've been doing with that and kind of how that has you started to talk about it and how that grew out of life in the Pueblo a little bit and your interests and in research at Lizard Man. So my interest in childhoods uh, began because I had these enigmatic little clay figurines that I was curious about. And because John and I were the main excavators, uh, we, we and our students ended up trying to analyze all the collections. We didn't have any money. So, uh, and luckily John could do some faunal analysis and we did get a few people to um, do things like some pollen analysis, but essentially we were the show. So what we kept going through collection by collection and one or the other of us would be assigned to that collection. So, you know, whether it um, worked sherds or 
these little figurines or whatever. So I was doing the figurines and I was trying to say something about them. And that got me interested in, you know, what other kinds of places do people find these figurines? And then I did some little experiments with fingerprints and decided that at least some of the figurines had actually been um, made by children. And so then I started looking for the childhood literature, childhood and archaeology. And I was like, oh, you know, children are so important in societies. And if you read any ethnography, children are there. If you go any place, you see children. They're around, they're about. But for the archaeologists, wow, they're kind of invisible. They were particularly invisible mm -hmm. um, in the late uh, 1990s. And so I started thinking we need to be we need to be paying more attention to this. Uh, luckily, now there are all, there's a, a fairly vibrant subgroup of archaeologists, uh, oddly primarily women, but a few males, <laughs> uh, who uh, study archaeology in childhood and are trying to to impart people the past uh, with young people. Not as many people uh, are studying the archaeology of aging, mm -hmm. and. You know, obviously, that's a, another niche that we probably shouldn't neglect. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm fascinated by it. It's it's in, inspired me most recently to start doing ethnog uh, some ethnography, interviewing parents of young children. So I currently have 67 interviews. I'm <laughs> trying to aim for 100. I don't know why, just like, you know, that magic round number. Uh, nice. But to start understanding how mo how material culture in the modern U.S. Um, is interacting with with very young children, infants, and mm -hmm. and toddlers, and it you know you be if you do this, you will be appalled, maybe shocked at how much material culture um, goes with infancy in the modern U.S. Mm -hmm. um, I did an ethnoarchaeology dissertation in Syria, and there there was very, very little material culture associated with infants and small children at all. I mean, some clothing. Um, but in general, babies at that point in a in a small, poor village did not have toys. They didn't have they slept with their mom. Mm -hmm. So they didn't have a crib or a cradle. There was very little material culture. And now you, you know, you baby proof your house, you buy millions of toys, bottles. I mean, the, it, the list is endless. Um, so uh, anyway, I've gotten very interested in, in material culture and, and, and childhood, partly because of that. So careers do that. Careers meander. <laughs> um, nice. And, and that's the way they ought to be, right? That's right. Um, never stuck. There's a logic that you don't always see if you're an outsider. Mm -hmm. I know if you're not the person with the career, but um, I think it's important that people realize that they have the opportunity to do a lot of different things. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I've been lucky, and archaeologists are particularly lucky this way. Um, yeah. You're not. You're not where your fields. You as an archaeologist do not have to be wedded to your dissertation, your field school, any any place in any prod problem. If you look at if you look at the 
truly famous archaeologists, they've done many things, but even those of us who aren't, um, you know, have opportunities and you should <laughs> grab them, you know, go excavate in some other part of the world or, or go do a survey someplace you've never been and start learning about somewhere new. It's really exciting to do that. And it will make it better. Your interpretations will get better. If you, uh, if you excavated a really big site, your site will start seeming more the size it really is, for right. example. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good. I, I'm, I'm glad you said that because we, we talk about that all the time on some of my other podcasts, you know, how archaeology can, can be whatever you want it to be and to, uh, you know, to just keep looking and, and experiencing new things. Um, we're going to go to break. I want to come back to the children after the break. Uh, and I would like to say one of your approaches to solving not not having any funds for all the lab analysis was to just grow your own lab technician, right, April? So, um, uh, yes. <laughs> so, all right. So we'll we'll, we'll approach the we'll, we'll talk about children again here in a second, right after the break. Women in Archaeology is a show about archaeology by the women of archaeology. An alternating panel of women archaeologists discuss the issues in archaeology that impact professionals and the public every day. Check out Women in Archaeology for a different perspective on the past today at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash WIA. Now let's get back to the show. Okay, we're back for our final segment, and I want to bring it back to the discussion of children because this is something that's also affected my career a little bit as a as a serum archaeologist. Just in thought, um, I remember working on the East Coast, and we found we kind of jokingly found you know we're saying these things, but we found uh, you know really crude uh, you know lithic artifacts, bifaces, and sometimes projectile points, and sometimes it was a factor of the material. I think in practice, people would see something mm -hmm. that that didn't look very polished and say, uh, you know, maybe it was the material, maybe it was something, but maybe it was children. Maybe it was people learning how to make projectile points. Maybe it was people not quite as experienced as the, as the elders doing this. And then when I came out here to the West, uh, I did a project here in Nevada and a gentleman, um, and maybe you, maybe you know of him, um, Kathy is, uh, Jeffrey Cunner. And he started looking at the archeology span of children and, and doing some experience and, uh, experiments and things like that. And it just, it seems like a completely underinterpreted section of the entire archaeological record to me. We always try to, like we said earlier about putting people in boxes with their, with their, you know, theoretical ideas. It's the same thing with artifacts. You look at these things and you say, okay, I found this one thing, so it must have been made by an adult and used for this because that's what the books tell me. But, you know, we have to really think about the other people that were in that village that had to learn, that had to do things that, you know, were part of that society. And then at the same time, uh, I spent some time in Africa as well, um, in Kenya and Tanzania. And I, I, I was just telling somebody about this the other day because I'm still constantly impressed by it. I don't have kids myself, but every time I see somebody's children and especially the kind of parenting styles that we have today um, – and I look and I say, you know, this this parent is is treating this six year old like they're an infant and they're not allowed to do anything. And I saw six year olds, I saw six year olds out in the savanna, 
you know, herding sheep around, they weren't old enough to have the spear and to herd the the cows uh, and and to keep the lions away. But they were, you know, they were just about at the point where they could wander around the savanna miles from the village and right. be on their own and then and then watch these little sheep and, and things like that. And I'm like, my God, if we sent a six-year-old from the United States out into the savanna, <laughs> they would be lion food in seconds. Well, <laughs> so. Child Protective Services would oh have taken the child away from you. Right, right. Uh, yes. Yeah, thinking about that stuff is is just amazing, and it could have been four year olds starting to make projectile points. We don't know, you know. Yeah, there's a great um, website somewhere on the web that I unfortunately can't find, but it shows a picture of a little girl. She looks about two, I would say, from you know the chubbiness of her hands, etc. Mm-hmm. She's sitting there, and she has a gigantic knife in one hand, and a piece of something mm-hmm. that looks like celery, but it's probably not. Mm-hmm in her other and the caption it's it's i i wish i remembered which faculty member somewhere was teaching with this and and it said um sometimes when i show my students this picture they say oh my gosh does her mother know she has that knife (laughs) and i say oh her mother gave her that knife so she could learn how to fix vegetables and help. Yeah. And, you know, uh, I think part of me thinks that's just really empowering for kids. Mm-hmm. Having having seen kids in, in places like, like a Syrian village where they're a little bit more empowered at a younger age to have a little more freedom than we give our kids. Mm-hmm. The other thing I think that people don't think about that relates directly with to children and material culture is we as archaeologists have a tendency to sort places and objects into even if we're thinking about kids it's a kid object or it's an adult object Mm -hmm. almost everything is an adult object but occasionally we'll say oh that's probably a kid pot that's really ugly or you know and tiny maybe that's a kid pot or maybe that's a toy when you think about it and the kids are using all the same things that everybody else is yeah um kids are living in houses, eating out of bowls. They're interacting with the whole environment. And I will say in a place, in in most places in the world, they don't create little miniature environments for kids and segregate them. Mm-hmm. Kids are just a part of the fabric. And so we would expect them to be using the same, the same things that everybody else is using. Yeah, and and like you said, that that attitude doesn't change with modern, uh, I guess. Uh, and by modern, I mean I guess current, uh, quote unquote, mm-hmm. primitive societies. I mean, I, I read a book not too long ago called "Don't Sleep There Are Snakes: Life and Language in the Amazonian Jungle" um, by Daniel Everett, and he went there with his. He went there initially by himself, but he went there with his family. And I want to say it was back in the early '80s, maybe even the '70s. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they've continued to go back every year, and they went actually as missionaries to translate. I think to learn their language and then to translate the Bible into their language, he ended up becoming a cultural anthropologist, I think, um, and kind of abandoning all that and, and just studying the people and then writing about them. And like you said, there was a, there was an example of, of, you know, mothers sitting around a fire and this one mother, she's got like a, a, an infant child in her, in her arms. And then there's another one, maybe two or three years old, probably younger behind her. And he's got like this huge butcher knife, 
um, that they'd gotten from some person that had visited the village. You know, they didn't make it. And the and the kid drops the knife behind her, and the mom, seemingly not looking, was actually paying attention. Turned around, picked up the knife, and gave it back to the kid because, because the kid had dropped it. And the 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 white people here in the village, they were he was writing about this, and he's like, you know, his wife was beside herself. She's like, "What are you doing?" <laughs> and it's just a different way of approaching it. You know, it's a different way of looking at it. So a different way of looking at it, and maybe. I hate to say this, but maybe a better way because th- that kid is going to be competent with knives. Oh yeah. And, and, uh, you know, there's nothing inherent uh, dangerous about things if they're used correctly. Right. Yeah. You give a, you give a kid a knife these days at, at eight years old or something like that. And they've never experienced something like that. They're going to whip it around like everything else. But you teach a kid at two or three that, Hey, that's the pointy end and it's going to hurt. They learn that lesson pretty fast, you know, and yes. if that was a little boy, I don't remember if it was a little boy or a little girl, but if it was a little boy in that village, that little boy is going to be on hunting parties in, in not too many years from that experience. Right. And they need to be on their toes and literally on their toes in that village, I think. But, uh, you know, yeah. it, it's just a completely different way. And, and it's I mean, we don't you know, we, we again, as archaeologists, shouldn't pass judgment, of course, we shouldn't say, is this right or is this wrong is the way. Is the way we do things now right or wrong? It's not. It's just different. It's just different. And and if you're around certain kinds of things and you're used to seeing them used and you're used to using them, you learn at a very young age. Mm-hmm. Kids are smarter than we think. Yeah. Um, and uh, I was reminded of a, of a story. My husband, uh, who makes stone tools at my instigation, uh, (laughs) made a stone tool kit for my cousin's kids. And they were about 10 at that age, at that time. And, you know, it was all beautifully, everything was labeled and, and there were of course instructions. This stuff is sharp. So they, one of the, it was two boys. One of the boys goes to his mom and says, Mom, this is cool. This is so sharp. And then he takes his the stone tool and his palm and he slices his oh palm my God. <laughs> to show his mom how amazingly and wonderfully sharp. Now, you know that no prehistoric kid would have ever done that. No. Well, they may have only done it once, that, though, or watched their okay. brother do it. <laughs> it's not that at age 10. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> By then, maybe they wouldn't have their finger. Um, right. No, but you know, if you learn it, too, that it's sharp, you, you know, you learn. Yeah. I think about this a lot too, going back to kind of the experimental archaeology side of things and also my museum background where we try, like in museums, you'll go and visit some of these living history museums where they're presenting, you know, past cultures and native cultures. And it's often being done by people who didn't grow up practicing these skills. Mm -hmm. And so everything looks clumsy and crude um, instead of polished. Because if you've been making a basket or skinning a deer hide since the time you were three, you know, it's second nature. You're good at it. You're fast. You're quite competent and you're skilled. Mm -hmm. And I think about this too, as archeologists, when we're trying to do analyses of things like lithics or ceramics, um, or even how to, you know, construction techniques where we haven't done this, we haven't grown up flint napping since the time we were 
three. And so how competent are we in some ways to really do all of these analyses? Because there's a certain understanding of how something is made that can only come from making it. Um, so I think that this is a really interesting problem in archaeology for all of us to think about. Uh, not only is kind of people in the past with all these different characters and thinking about what their competencies are, but also considering what are the competencies that we lack that we are then not fully able to understand or think about in doing analyses. That's that's great that you brought that up, April, because I, I always... Um... I always equate, and I, I keep coming back to like projectile points and things because that's prehistorically that's like ninety nine percent of archaeological record here in the Great Basin, and because uh, that's what survives, so that's what we find. But every time we find something that looks really great, it's not broken, it's got really good, um, you know, really even flaking on it, it's got a nice thickness, it just looks like a really awesome tool. Most of the people on the crew, including myself, early on, are like, "Oh, look at this thing! It's amazing!" and it's blah blah blah, and I. I try not to look at it that way, honestly. I try not to to put it up on this pedestal because I equate projectile point making with driving today. Nearly mm -hmm. everybody can do it. Not everybody's as good at it as some other people, but almost everybody can do it. It's a skill that you almost have to have in the United States to just be a person and, and to get places and do things. And I feel like that was the same thing with projectile points, you know, even, even 150 years ago, where this was just part of your life. This is what you had to do to survive and eat. And it wasn't special. Now, of course, some of the ceremonial type objects you get out of obsidian and, and other things that are crazy. I think those probably were the works of masters, but your everyday, your everyday projectile point that was the end of a spear or an arrow or dart point or something like that. I mean, they, they look cool to us, but I try not to objectify them that way and analyze them that way when I'm thinking about the site. This is just a, you know, this is just something that was there, and it's it's one of the things that they had. You know, it's kind of how I, I try to look at it. But I don't know if that's right or not, but that's my interpretation, I guess. Well, or even thinking, if you have a craftsperson, and they can make something mm -hmm. that gorgeous, do they do it every time? Right. You yeah. know, uh, sometimes you just want to do something quick, perhaps. Mm -hmm. or Or maybe they did have the kind of pride in craftsmanship that they say, no, no, I'm always going to make it beautiful. Right. Well, look at our and experts, like your husband. You know, he, he can probably nap out some pretty fantastic looking points in a pretty short period of time. Does he think now, now at this stage of his career, does he think those are, you know, amazing in the work of a master? He hands that to a, an undergrad and they probably think that, but he's like, yeah, I made 25 of those like before lunch. So... Um, <laughs> you know what I mean? The, the kind of value that they may have had, right? You know, maybe, maybe different. You know, to the to the expert. You're mm -hmm. right. Mass production. Yeah. But, you know, he would say ten minutes to make a projectile point. <laughs> right. And uh, of course, it would take me, you know, yeah, a, a hundred tries and <laughs> ten hours. That would take me all day, and I'd only be able to count to nine by the time I was done, too, because I would. <laughs> that's that's how that would go. Um, well, we've got about uh, four or five minutes left in this show. Um, have you been asked or thought about doing an, an update to the Life in the Pueblo book, a, a second book, or a, an update to the original, or you know, a similar theme about a different site? Have you have you thought about that? Well. You know, I, I've had a lot of fun writing Life in the Pueblo. Mm -hmm. I have occasionally thought, oh, well, maybe we should update it 
you know, bringing in, first of all, more recent techniques that exist out there. And mm -hmm. secondly, uh, some of our work at New Caves. But actually, I think what my next book project is, I've actually written an NEH grant for mm -hmm. this, so I have my fingers crossed, is one on uh, archaeology of childhood. Nice. Where I want to look at childhood through an archaeological lens and uh, try to communicate with students and more popular audiences about what we do and don't know about prehistoric childhoods from a variety of different kinds of places mm -hmm. and how these relate to the kinds of questions that people are asking about the nature of childhood today. Okay. So that's... I think that's going to be my next fun, my next fun. <laughs> <laughs> nice. I, I feel like we should really be covering that on the archaeology podcast network somewhere too. It, it's I, this is the first time I can remember thinking about spending any time talking about that. It might've been mentioned before, but spending any time talking about the archaeology of, of childhood. And, uh, cause I think it's, I, I feel like it's one of those big, huge gaping holes in, in our interpretive methods for looking at sites, especially with CRM archaeologists, you know, we're all very, we seem very textbook about stuff and just like, you know, this, this, and this, and, and, and not really thinking outside that box. Um, so maybe we should have a, a, a longer discussion about that. And if you get that grant and start working on the book, you know, maybe start, <laughs> we'll do a short series or something and, and start, start Little lining that up. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I, I, I think that's a really interesting comment you made, these kind of gaping holes in archaeology. Mm -hmm. um, and I haven't identified them all, neither have you. No. But when you hear a hole, you often go, oh, my God, why don't people talk about that? So, for example not the past SAAs, but the, the SAAs before that, um, mm -hmm. April Noel and Nan Gonlin uh, organized a session on archaeology of the night. Mm, nice. And I, and I kind of went, oh, wow, that's brilliant. I always picture places like Lizard Man Village <laughs> in the daytime. Yeah. I never picture them at night, but of course it was night a lot and all kinds of things happened during the night and in part things may have been laid out to okay. facilitate things that happened at night and so you know it's a really big challenge when you and when you hear one of these questions that archaeologists don't ask um it's incredibly challenging mm -hmm. i i think the people who started um do with gender people like meg conkey yeah. When they started talking about gender, it must have been that same kind of excitement of like, wow, yes. Mm -hmm. Why aren't people asking this question? They ought to be asking it more. It ought to be routine that we think about some of these things mm -hmm. at sites. And for our, you know, less established listeners, this is how people make amazing careers is by realizing one of these gaps and starting yeah. to be the first person to kind of poke at it and explore it. Um, and they, that's how they make their name. Yeah. And that's another example from that. Um, don't sleep. There are snakes book. And I'll have a link to that as well in the show notes. Uh, 
one of the observations he made was that this this village, this Amazon village, and this is you know thirty years ago and probably still today, they they didn't really have a lot of responsibilities. They didn't have any like warring villages they were dealing with. So their basic day to day was just hunt, eat, sleep, and make babies, and that was pretty much it. And he said, you know, they they treated food like it was the last meal they were ever going to eat. And sometimes hunters would bring back, you know, they'd be gone for days, uh, days at a time, and they would be back at, you know, 11, 12 o'clock at night, but they've got food. So everybody's up, everybody's awake. They sit and eat until the food is all gone. I mean, they don't save any of it. They sit and eat until the food is all gone, and then they sleep again. So our concept of nine to five really is just from the, you know, from the industrial age. And But we try to put that on top of our sites and say, well, you know, like like you said, Kathy. You know, what's the site look like during the day? But we don't consider the night. But they didn't have that concept of day night. They were, you know, constantly on the lookout for food, constantly on the lookout for predators, and probably were just awake when they had to be and asleep when they had to be, and and just dealt with it that way. So you know, it's it's you're right. It's a huge gap that we don't ever think about. So April, April, you got any final comments? Well, uh, this was a great conversation. Um, I think my final one is. Um, if you check out our show notes, we'll have a couple of links to different things. And uh, Kathy has said that she'll potentially have a short PowerPoint with a couple mm. of slides um, and images to help support uh, what is in Life in the Pueblo. If nice. people are using that book and want a little bit of extra material. I hope I'm not, you know, spreading false rumors, Kathy. <laughs> no, no, that would, that would be my pleasure. Okay. I have occasionally uh, responded to queries that that people who were teaching with that uh you know gave me you know do you have some slides you could you could share do you have some powerpoint slides and i you know of course would say yes so nice okay well thanks a lot kathy um this was fantastic i i didn't think when i was reading this book 17 years ago that uh i'd be interviewing the author on a podcast but you never know where life is going to take you in archaeology like we said earlier <laughs> so. yeah well i think it's a fun niche that you have have found and it's a yeah. great way to communicate with a broader public as well as with other archaeologists to have things like podcasts blogs etc mm -hmm. so it's cool and 17 years ago that wasn't a thing <laughs> podcast didn't even exist 17 years ago yeah it's, true. it's yeah. crazy yeah, it's it's insane. Yeah, and and we're recording this on April thirtieth, and we're on track to hit seventy thousand seventy thousand monthly subscribers across all the shows on the APN wow. uh, this month. So I, I'm 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 not looking at the numbers yet. I'm giving it to the end of the day. I'm, I'm keeping my cool on that. But <laughs> I think I think we're gonna hit it or get dangerously close. So it's uh you know a lot of people are listening to this, which I'm glad, so they can hear. You I'm know, impressed. Yeah. Well. Well, thank you. And it's only with, you know, guests like you that keep this thing going anyway. So thanks a lot, Kathy. And uh, hey, thank you so much. It was fun. Thank you, April. And, and we'll see all you guys next time. Thanks for listening to the Archaeology Podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. You can provide feedback using the contact button on the right side of the website at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash archaeology. Or you can email chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. 
please like and share the show wherever you saw it so more people can have a chance to listen and learn. Send us show suggestions and follow ArcPodNet on Twitter and Instagram. This show was produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network. Opinions are solely those of the hosts and guests of the show. However, the APN stands by their hosts. Special thanks to the band Sea Hero for letting us use their song, I Wish You'd Look. Check out their albums on Bandcamp at seahero.bandcamp.com. Check out our next episode in two weeks. And in the meantime, keep learning, keep discovering new things, and keep listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Have an awesome day. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US dollars a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info.